You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. Let's ask for God's help. Father in heaven, we are your servants. Let it be done to us according to your word. Would you come now by the power of your spirit? Would you overshadow us with the power of the Most High? And would you birth in us love and delight and praise for your Son, even now as we focus these moments on his mother? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the reasons that Christmas is so controversial is that Christmas, rightly understood, makes a shocking and offensive claim. Christmas implies that we humans need a saving that we cannot provide by ourselves. Christmas declares that if we could produce a Redeemer, we would need Christmas. And since we can't produce that Redeemer ourselves, it must mean that we are great in our sin and guilt and that a Savior must come from the outside. Now, God could have made his entrance into our world in any number of ways. He could have come as a grown man. He could have given spirit-sanctified conception to an already married couple. But he chose to mark his wisdom in his coming by a special way, with an utterly unique conception that would set his son apart from the very beginning as not only fully human, but is distinct. And this unique entrance of the Son of God into the world, Christians have long called the virgin birth, or more precisely, the virgin conception. And not only is it offensive to some in implying that we must have a Redeemer, we can't save ourselves, but it also seems like folly to many. People would say, this is not how humans are conceived. We know how humans are conceived. And they knew that 2,000 years ago as well. That's precisely the point of the virgin conception, is that God is showing us he's doing something distinct and unique. Scottish theologian Donald MacLeod writes this about the virgin birth. I love this. The virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas, and none of us must think of hurrying past it. It stands on the threshold of the New Testament, blatantly supernatural, defying our rationalism, informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself, and that if we find it offensive, there is no point in proceeding any further. So here we are on the second Sunday of Advent, and we are on the door of the mystery of Christmas, and instead of hurrying past the virgin conception, we're going to linger blatantly supernatural, defying our rationalism and exalting Mary's son in a way that cuts to the very heart of what Christmas and Advent are. So in these four Sundays, as you may know, started last week, we're moving together through the first two chapters of Luke. Last Sunday, we looked at John the Baptist and the promise of his coming. This morning, we're going to turn and look at Mary Next Sunday, we'll come back to John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, and then on December 23rd, 
We'll focus in on the Christ child and the announcement of his birth to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. So as we turn to Mary this morning, what I want to do is draw your attention to what I think are the three most important truths about Mary, the three most important things. And I think we're on good footing here because the Gospel of Luke tells us more about Mary than any other source. Luke seems to have known Mary personally. Perhaps he interviewed her or maybe he had more relationship with her even than that as he wrote this gospel. He tells us things about Mary we find no other place and that he would not known probably had he not had personal contact with Mary. So Luke tells us the most important things, I'm convinced. And I'd like to highlight for you three this morning, the three most important things for us to know about Mary. Number one is Mary's submission. So we want to admire Mary's submission. Number one, admire her submission. This is verses 26 to 38 that Kevin read. And Mary's expression of her submission comes in verse 38, but let's set the scene here before we look at verse 38. Mary is from a place called Nazareth. Now today, we recognize that name Nazareth because 2,000 years later, it's been made famous by Mary's son. And it's a positive word now, largely, because of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. But Nazareth, 2,000 years ago, was very unimpressive, to say the least. The Old Testament, in all of its mentions of land and place and proper names, the Old Testament never mentions Nazareth. It's small beings. We, we sing about Bethlehem, old little town of Bethlehem. And Bethlehem was small compared to Jerusalem. But Bethlehem dwarfs Nazareth in its prestige and its significance as being the city of David. But Nazareth is a podunk backwater town. And some 30 years later, a man named Nathaniel would express the common sentiment about Nazareth in the first century among Jews. He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So the virgin conception begins very humbly with an unmarried woman in an unimpressive place. The angel named Gabriel comes to Mary. This is only one of two angels that we know their names in the Bible. There's Gabriel and there's Michael. Gabriel also came, last week we saw, to Zechariah. Gabriel also showed up 500 years before to the prophet Daniel, Daniel chapters 8 and 9. And he reveals to Mary that she will have a son who will be the long-awaited, much-prophesied Messiah, the greatest king who would come from the line of David, who was king a thousand years before in Israel. And Mary asked a question. We saw last week that can go wrong when you ask an angel a question. But Mary asked a question. This is verse 34. How will this be? since I'm a virgin. Now, last week we saw that when Zechariah asked a question to the angel, he was struck with silence because the angel said, this is Luke 120, the angel said, you did not believe my words. Zechariah asked a question from unbelief. But it's different with Mary. She asks in faith. And the reason that we can take it that Mary asks in faith is because that's what Elizabeth commends her for in chapter 1, verse 45. 
Elizabeth says that Mary believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So there is a place for faith in our questions. And there's a way to ask questions in faith. Submission to God doesn't mean that Mary doesn't have any questions. Rather, it means that she asks in faith. She asks from a place of faith that knowing that God has answers and that he will reveal them, not in her preferred time, but in his due season and proper timing. So verse 35 then, look at verse 35. Verse 35 is the best explanation we have of the virgin conception. All right, this is as deep as it goes. Right? Here's the bottom of Revelation on the virgin conception. Gabriel says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, the key word here is overshadow. The Holy Spirit, Gabriel says, will overshadow Mary. And the reason this term is significant is it's only mentioned one other place in the Gospel of Luke. It's chapter 9, verse 34. And the setting there is the transfiguration. Jesus goes up to the mountain with James and John and Peter, and he is transfigured before them. They get a glimpse of what he will look like in his resurrected, glorified humanity. And Luke 9, 34 there says that the cloud came and overshadowed them. This idea of a cloud overshadowing some aspect in creation goes back to the very beginning where the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1 hovers over the waters before God begins his creative act. And then at Mount Sinai, when Moses goes up to meet God, there's a cloud that descends upon the mountain. It's a, it's a sign or an image here of God's presence and God's work and that God's going to do this. He's going to do something special in this conception for Mary. Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 has another kind of statement, another summary of what's going to happen. And Matthew just says, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That's all Joseph gets to know. What's in her is from the Holy Spirit. God doesn't give all the details, but he does clarify that he, not man, will take the initiative and conceive the child in Mary. Now verse 38. Here's the climax of this first section in the text that Kevin read. Verse 38. This is Mary's remarkable response. And <laughs> it's really amazing. It begins with the word behold. Usually the angel says to the human, behold. Announcement from God. But Mary begins her response with, Behold, listen. Don't miss this, angel. Listen. There's a kind of confidence and a resoluteness and a boldness here in Mary's answer. Look at verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. There's one commentator on the Gospel of Luke who makes the observation that this very well may be the most faithful response to God's revelation of His will in Scripture yet to this point. No one in Israel ever responded to God the way Mary does. Mary demands no outside proofs, no signs that the impossible should be made possible. She receives God's word in abandonment and trust. And like mother, like son. 
This is so significant. I want you to see this here in verse 38. This, of course, will not be the last humble, submissive embrace of God's will in this gospel. Mary's response of submission to God's will anticipates her son's submission to the Father's will in the garden the night before he died. Just think about this with me. Think about the model and the molding that Mary provided for Jesus and all that she provided for God's own son. Not just an ovum and nine-month gestation and the pains of childbirth, but a home, the environment, the nurture within which Jesus grew up and may well have had to do that as a single parent. Jesus grew up under her care. She never disowned him or abandoned him in all the controversy that he, that he caused. And she was even there with him in the utterly shaming event of the cross. Just imagine the impact this woman had upon our Lord. No other human so deeply shaped the very Son of God in his humanity. Which merits, I think, a special word to the mothers among us here this morning. Moms, you have the most important calling in the world. And Satan is trying to do everything he can to get you to be convinced otherwise. And that's in no way to say that dads are dispensable. It is a great tragedy that somewhere along the way, Jesus loses his earthly adopted father, Joseph. That is a great pain and loss. There is no minimizing here the role of a father. But yet, God saw fit in the raising of his son as human. Even when Joseph is gone, he preserves Jesus' mama till the end. She is there with him at the cross. This is a great honor and glory and statement of the importance of her role for the human Jesus. He kept Mary there for his son all the way to Calvary. And moms, God has placed a unique and indispensable calling on you as mothers. And I think it's good, it's right, to draw inspiration and example from the person of Mary in her care for Jesus. Mary's glad submission and faithfulness to God's call is a good model for us to follow 2,000 years later. So, verse 38, we admire Mary's submission, the first of three most important things about her. Now skip down to verses 46 to 55. Skip over a section, and we're going to look at Mary's song. So number one, her submission. Secondly, her songs. Let's hear Mary's song together. After Mary's visit from the angel and her, cousin, her visit to her cousin Elizabeth, Luke records a psalm that Mary wrote. Christians call this the Magnificat. Maybe you've heard that before. In Latin, the first word is Magnificat. And so the prayer is, is called after its first word. And there's three distinct parts to the song. I'm going to read it for you. And I want you to listen for these three distinct parts. I'll try to mention them as we go along. In verses 46 to 47, Mary states what she's trying to do in the psalm. She's praising God. And there's an amazing insight for us, not only as worshipers, but as Christians, in Mary's statement of what it means to magnify or glorify or praise God. We'll come to that. Then verses 48 to the beginning of verse 49, 
she states why she's praising. She gives a reason for her praise. And it's what, has got, what God has done for her. It's very brief, and it's very general. Right? Don't think that this is Mary's private journal. It's not. This is not very personal. This is for all Christians. This is an amazing psalm. We'll see that in a minute. We'll see that here in verses 49 to 55. That's the third section. This is who God is for us all, all the time. So what Mary's doing into a general statement of why she praises him, and then the bulk of her song is about who God is, his very character, how he acts in the world, and how his people should see him and praise him. It is, and it's actually, it, this is one of the best brief glimpses into the character of God in all the Bible. So don't, don't bracket the Magnificat as if, oh, this is Mary's personal little thing on the side. You know, skip to the next part of the narrative. This is significant. This is one of the most potent, brief, profound glimpses into the character of who God is in all the Bible. Look at verses 46 to 55. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. There's her statement of what she's doing in the psalm. Now, she's going to give a reason. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. This is for all generations. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. When she says holy is his name, she begins now to talk about his character. The rest of the psalm is about the character of God. What does it mean for him to be God and for him to be holy? Verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. And he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. So the heart of Mary's song here, her Magnificat, the special psalm or poem, is verses 49 to 55, and it's a remarkable, remarkable celebration of who God is, and his surprising ways with humanity. Don't miss this. Don't miss the surprise of how God does things. He is the kind of God, different from humans, who shows strength not by recruiting the strong to his cause, but by rescuing the weak. Just how Jonathan welcomed us at the beginning. That was a welcome from the heart of God. He's not here to recruit the strong. He's plenty strong enough on his own. He's here to help the weak. This is not just a celebration of God's kindness to Mary, but a window into who God is for his people all the time. And the essence of his holiness, that's verse 49. You see, see in verse 49, holy is his name. The essence of God's holiness is that he does different things than our human instincts. His ways are higher than our ways, Isaiah 55. The older will serve the younger. That's what we saw in Genesis. He rallies to the weak, not to the strong. And God is not just this way for Mary and for a few others. This is the God who is. This is how he is across time. He makes foolish the wisdom of the world. 
Over and over again, when we think we have things figured out with our human minds, when we think we know what to expect of God, we find out again and again that he shatters the mold. And Mary's son will literally embody this. Humans naturally tend to rally to the strong and neglect the weak. But God rallies to the humble, and he puts down the prideful. There are three pairs in this psalm about what he does for the weak and what he does to the strong and self-sufficient. Look at these pairs. Uh, Verse 48, he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. He looks upon and is ready to act with grace and help for the humble. Verse 51, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Verse 52, he's brought down the mighty from their thrones. Verse 52, he has exalted those of humble estate. Verse 53, he fills the hungry with good things. It's going to sound like the Beatitudes. Blessed are the hungry, for they shall be satisfied. Verse 53, the rich he sends away empty. And then verse 54, he has helped his servant, lowly servant, Israel. So God puts down the proud, the mighty, the rich, and he raises up the humble, the weak, the hungry. Another way to say it is that about what we celebrate at Christmas is that Christmas turns the world upside down. Jesus comes to humble the proud and to exalt the humble. Instead of visiting the palace in Jerusalem, God comes to a rustic, forgotten town, to a young unmarried woman, and he magnifies his strength by lifting up human weakness. And Mary's song is not only that, Mary's song not only shows us that this is the case and that it's celebrated, but she also gives us a glimpse, a profound glimpse into how this happens for those who would say, I'm humble, I'm hungry, I'm weak, I need your help, oh God. How is it that God is magnified in the weak? Not just through them, not just on account of them, but in them. What's going on in our hearts? What's the spirit of the weak, of the humble, of the hungry that magnifies God? That's what verses 46 and 47 give us. Look at verse 46. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. There is a, a life-changing truth here, if you catch it. So if you can track this with me. God is magnified in us when we, like Mary, rejoice in Him. You might say, hold on just a minute, hold on. God's magnifying and the Spirit's rejoicing are connected here by the word and. The word is and. It's not when or by, or through, the word is and. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The question is, how do the two relate? They're connected by and. How do the two relate? Is there any significance in God's being magnified for Mary's rejoicing, or for Mary's rejoicing for God being magnified? And the answer is yes. And I think Mary's song makes clear enough Who's ultimate in this? Who the great one is in this is God and his power and his wisdom. How does a soul magnify God? 
And the answer is by the Spirit rejoicing in God. We magnify or glorify or honor what we rejoice in. When we delight in someone, we honor them. We make them look good. We magnify them. When, when, when Mary rejoices in God, her Savior, she is magnifying him as Savior, as powerful, as a helper. He looks good because of her delight in him. And many of us, former pastor, or you know of, John Piper at our planting church, Bethlehem, our previous pastor, and he, he says it this way, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Your pastors know this truth and love this truth and teach this truth, and we find it profoundly insightful for all of the Christian life, no less what we do here together on Sundays in worship. And there's a beautiful biblical statement of it right here in Mary's psalm, in her Magnificat. God is magnified in Mary when her spirit rejoices in him. God's design for our lives is that we magnify him. And he means to give us help with all his sovereign power in helping us to rejoice in him. This is such good news. It shouldn't land on us as just a demand that God's magnified in our joy and our rejoicing. Therefore, you better make yourself happy. You better rejoice. Rather, we should hear that God means to make us the kind of people. He means to help. By the power of his spirit, he overshadows us to give us the grace of rejoicing in him so that he looks good in our lives and is honored in our lives like he is here in Mary. So we've looked at Mary's submission and looked at her song. And now finally, this is, we're going to jump back up to verses 39 to 45 for the last one. This is her son. The three most important things about Mary are her submission, her song, and her son. We admire her submission, we hear and learn from her song, and finally we worship her son. This is verses 39 to 45. Look at those. Let me read them for you. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. All right, so our, for our purposes here as we close, the key phrase in the account here of Mary visiting Elizabeth is that phrase, the mother of my Lord. The mother of my Lord. And this idea of Mary being the mother of our Lord or the mother of God has a long controversial history in the church. I won't tell you the long part. But let me tell you just briefly. There was a major church council in 431 in Ephesus. It's called the Council of Ephesus. And Mary was affirmed to be, the Greek word, theotokos. It means mother of God. They all got together. 
bishops, leaders from the churches all over the world and said, Mary is mother of God. She is Theotokos. And originally, affirming Mary as mother of God was mainly a statement about Jesus, not Mary. It was clear enough that Mary's just human. And it was clear enough that Jesus was human. And the issue was, is Jesus more than human? Is Mary merely the mother of a human, or is Mary the mother of God? Because Jesus is God. So the language of Mary as mother of our Lord, mother of God, is not mainly about her. It's an honor to her, no doubt, but it's mainly about who Jesus is. However, as we might expect, the veneration of Mary went too far in far too many places. And that word veneration is important because the Catholic Church does not state, it does not claim to worship Mary. The Catholic Church claims to venerate Mary. And it also claims, through church tradition, other things about Mary that are not clearly represented in the Scriptures. Her perpetual virginity, that she was always a virgin. Her bodily assumption into heaven, that she did not die in her body, was taken up to heaven, body and soul. Her immaculate conception, that not only was her son sinless, but that she herself was sinless. And finally, that she is the queen of heaven. Again, not worshipped, but venerated. And is to be prayed to, they would say, because she's the, the queen of heaven. She's the highest ranking female in heaven. And in no way to excuse these false doctrines, it is easy enough to see how they might develop. Because of the tremendous honor and blessing it is for Mary to carry God's own son in her womb and be his mother. You can hear it in the repetition of the word favored. Favored is another word for graced. Favored, verses 28 and 30, she's favored. And then blessed, verses 42, 45, 48, Mary is blessed. And then there's that memorable line from Elizabeth. Maybe this caught your ear if you have any background in the Catholic Church or have family who are Catholic. Verse 42, maybe you, you've heard this line from the Hail Mary. This goes straight into the Hail Mary from Luke chapter 1. Elizabeth says, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Whoa, Luke. Such an honor that you'd re record that for her. But the overappreciation of Mary is something that Jesus himself and Luke, Luke who says the most and the most honorable things about Mary, Jesus himself and Luke hedge against it. And let me give you one really important text. There's another one in Luke 8, but let's talk about Luke 11. This is Luke 11, verses 27 to 28. I'll read it for you. You don't have to go there. You can if you want to. Luke 11, 27 to 28, here as we close. A woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to Jesus, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And Jesus says, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Even in Jesus' own life, Things are at the tipping point of getting out of balance on how we might honor and appreciate in a deserved way what Mary did for us 
by raising Jesus, who does the ultimate work for us. And Jesus himself, in no way putting down his mama, he's not dishonoring his mama when he says this. He is honoring her because this is exactly what she would want him to say. Mary, of all people, does not want to be honored in a way that would eclipse her son. She doesn't want to be a distraction from her son. She wants Jesus to say this. She wants Luke to make this clarification and wants us to know this clarification. So in Luke 2, Mary is the one who is blessed. Get this. Mary is the one who is blessed by God. She is not the blesser. She's doing no blessing here. She's being blessed. She is the one receiving God's grace and favor as the mother of his son. She is not the blesser, and she is not the giver of grace, but the receiver. So finally here, this little phrase, the mother of my Lord. What then do we do with the phrase, the mother of my Lord? The word Lord is all over Luke 1 and 2. I don't know if you've noticed it as we've read these texts. The word Lord appears 25 times in Luke chapters 1 and 2. A stunning amount. And only here, and in Luke 2.11, only in two places of those 25, does Lord apply to Jesus. The mother of my Lord is talking about Jesus. And we'll see on December 23rd, Luke chapter 2.11, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. At this point in the story, it is a shocking idea that this baby, whoever he's going to be, will be called the name Lord, which is the title for God throughout the Old Testament. That God's own title, God's own way of being recognized by his covenant people is being applied now for the first time here. And then again in Luke chapter 2. And then it becomes so prevalent throughout this gospel that when you turn to the end of the gospel, every time Lord is mentioned, it's about Jesus. Jesus is filling out this title, Lord, as God himself among God's people. And it's shocking enough in this passage, after a thousand years, that David's great descendant is finally coming. This should be a shock to Mary when the angel announces it. Joseph's from the house of David. The Lord himself, verse 32, will give him the throne of his father David. This is probably how Mary understood originally these, these uh, terms like he will be son of the Most High, he'll be son of God in verse 35, that he would be God's appointed ruler over his people. But there's more that's going on here than just a king after David's line. And verse 33 amazingly says, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Not only will he be king, the long-promised king, but his kingship will not end. And yet, the most important claim made here is that he's not just David's son, but he's David's Lord. God himself came in the person of his son, which is what makes Christmas so controversial and so powerful. As we come here to the table, we come to celebrate not the mother, but her Lord and our Lord and David's Lord. We come to celebrate Mary's son, 
she gladly joins us on our side of the table, not Jesus's. Mary herself confessed in verse 48 that she needs a Savior. And here, as we take the bread and pass it around, we'll bring it around to you. Uh, This is mainly for the members of our church, but if you'd say here this morning, Jesus is my Lord. Behold, I'm his servant. Let it be done to me according to his word. We'd ask you to take with us, eat with us. We'll hold the bread and keep it and eat together. And as we do, we're going to sing this song, What Child Is This? Now, uh, as a kid, this is one of my least favorite Christmas songs. Because it's in a minor key. Joy of the world, it's all happy. Chipper joy of the world. What child is this? Minor chords, what's going on here? <laughs> and I thought I knew, like, doesn't everyone know the answer? What child is this? I mean, it's Jesus, right? Why are we asking the question, what child is this? I had no poetic ear as a child. I hope you're growing in your poetic ear. Maybe this, what child is this this morning? Is your chance to grow in a poetic ear. What child is this is remarkable as a Christmas song because of the verse that says, nails, spear will pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. And some people don't sing what child is this at Christmas or they get rid of that verse. Nick's not going to get rid of that verse because they don't understand how Christmas and Easter go together. It is appropriate to sing of Jesus at Christmas that nails, spear will pierce him through because this is why he came. He came to save us. He came to die for us. He came that we might share in this table together as a remembrance and means of grace of what he's done for us. So, brothers, come on. Let's distribute the bread. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.